You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripture reading is taken from the book of Judges, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, 29 to 35. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons, sorry, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. When Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, the worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And, when, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us, if we do not do as you say. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through, the, passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroah to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of, my, of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, BJ. A very good morning. The Lord bless you. We are looking at what it means to be priests at work. Uh, priests are, let me get it on the slide, priests are mediators. Right, they stand between God and man, they represent God before man, and they represent man before God. Now at work, whether at the office or in school or at home, 
Uh, we mediate by representing God before our colleagues, our classmates, um, our family members, and so on. And we do this by bringing the presence of God into our arenas of work, by bringing the shalom of God, His flourishing, into our places of work, and by reflecting God's good and right order into our work environments and into this broken world. So this is what this series is about, and my desire through this series is to equip you and to enable you to flourish as God's priest at work. Now, last week we talked about uh, the importance of having a healthy biblical sense of calling at work and how such a calling can anchor uh, our priestly work. Now, the truth is, you will still struggle with your work even after understanding your calling. In fact, you can have all kinds of knowledge, you, could, you can read all kinds of books, you can have a whole theology on work, but you will still struggle to be a priest at work. Why? Now, there's a, a saying that goes, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Right? I heard that before. Now, it might sound a little idealistic, you know, a little naive, but there's some truth in it. And as Christians, we would say, if we have found Jesus as the one our hearts love, then there will be such a freedom in our work. If the Holy Spirit would work the gospel into our hearts and we beheld the beauty of Jesus, then the joyful abandon that we see perhaps in the book of Acts, that could be ours. But the truth is, many times, Jesus is not quite our love, especially at our workplace. He's not, isn't he? Right? We, we love all kinds of things about our work, making friends, making money, meeting goals, uh, feeling accomplished, doing good things, all kinds of things. But who among us would say, I love my studies because I know I'm studying for Jesus and I love him. I love my work because Jesus is my master and I love him. I love cleaning up after my child all day because I know this pleases Jesus and I love him. Underlying our struggles and difficulties and many times our godlessness at work is a question of desire. What do you love about your work? What do you desire from your work? And unless Jesus is the one we love, unless he's the one we desire, then we will struggle to be priests at work. So this morning, we're going to look at the story of Jephthah from Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah's life is a, a life defined by desire. Now, let me just give you some background. The book of Judges, uh, we're going to see, or what, what we see in the book of Judges is the nation of Israel in a really, really bad state, right? They have entered the promised land. They have conquered much of the promised land. But the people have turned away from God. Their desire was for God's good gifts but it wasn't for God himself. So they turn to idols. And as a result, God's judgment falls upon them. Their enemies begin to oppress and persecute them. But every now and then, God would raise up a champion, a mediator, a judge to save the people from their enemies and to turn their hearts back to God. Now, Jephthah was one such judge that God raised up to deliver his people. And in Judges chapter 11, we are given a sneak peek into Jephthah's life. Right? I'll be looking at Jephthah's life in four parts. Uh, firstly, the broken backstory. Secondly, the unexpected opportunity. Thirdly, the God-given victory. And finally, the tragic aftermath. 
And at the end, I want to give us three applications towards priestly purity so that we uh, can have our desires set on Jesus. And then from there, we can find freedom to work as his priest. Now, just like last week, I also want to let you know that I'm not going to be flashing up every single verse on the screen. So I encourage you again to have your Bibles open to Judges chapter 11. uh, And then I, I think you'll be better able to follow along with the sermon. All right. So let's begin with the first part, the broken backstory. Now, Jephthah is what you would call a bastard, right? He is a child born out of wedlock. He's the son of a prostitute. He was raised in his father's home, but as an illegitimate son, he was despised by his family, particularly his brothers. Now, as Jephthah gets older, this is what happens. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. And when Jephthah's brothers grew up, they drove Jephthah out. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to war with him. So Jephthah has become a mighty warrior. He's a hardy fighter. He's an inspiring leader. He's drawing all kinds of other men to fight under his name. But even though Jephthah is a mighty warrior, it seems as if he just crumbles before his brothers. His brothers drove mighty Jephthah out of their home. And Jephthah flees from his brothers. The mighty warrior ran away. Now, why did Jephthah run? Why didn't he retaliate? Why did Jephthah flee and not fight? Now, people, I think this first three verses, it introduces us to Jephthah's weak spot, right? The chink in his armor, his, his Achilles heel. And that weakness is Jephthah's yearning for acceptance. It's his longing to belong. It's his desire for family. And Jephthah longs to have a family that would love him, even though he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. And it's quite sad, actually. But this backstory shows us how this desire for acceptance is nurtured in Jephthah's heart and how this desire would go on to control every decision Jephthah would make in the future. So let's look at that in part two the unexpected opportunity. Now, when we come to verse 4, war has broken out. The Ammonites are attacking, and as war breaks out, this is what happens. The elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, which is where Jephthah is now living, far away from his uh, hometown. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. So the leaders of Gilead, which is Jephthah's hometown, they are afraid And they know they need a strong warrior to fight for them. And so mighty Jephthah and his gang of fighters, they seem like their best hope. So when the elders found Jephthah, they welcomed him back home to Gilead to be their general, to be their commander-in-chief, and to lead them in war against the Ammonites. Now, what an opportunity for Jephthah to get revenge. This could have been payback time right, for, against his brothers, against his family, against his hometown, everyone who has rejected him, Jephthah has now the opportunity to make them suffer. And I want to tell you that Jephthah is completely capable of such vengeance. If you read the next chapter, Judges chapter 12, you would see how Jephthah can really hold a grudge, right? He's more than capable of exacting cruel revenge. But instead, this is Jephthah's response. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me 
and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now, we don't see any hint of vengeance, right? There's no gloating at how the tables have turned. There's nothing like that. Instead, we see Jephthah being vulnerable. It's like Jephthah's become a little boy again, and he's asking the elders, don't you hate me? I thought you didn't like me. I thought you didn't want me around. So why would you even turn to me, especially now, at a bad time like this? And I think the elders were shrewd enough to catch this vulnerability, this desire that Jephthah has to belong, because they don't really quite answer his question about the past. Instead, they appeal to Jephthah's desires, and they say, yes, Jephthah, we are going through such a hard time, and that's why we need you, Jephthah. You are the only one who can save us. Fight for us. We want you. And now they increase the offer. They say, not only as our general, but also as head of our tribe. Now, the elders were leveraging Jephthah's desire to their advantage. They had increased their offer to him, and it was an offer that Jephthah couldn't refuse. For him, becoming the tribe head meant that people would respect him, people would accept him, and he would finally belong. And so Jephthah jumps at the offer, and he says, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Now, incidentally, this is the first time that God is mentioned in this story, right? And it's mentioned by Jephthah himself, no less. And we realize that Jephthah is actually a man of faith. He's a worshiper of Yahweh. He knows the God of Israel. And Jephthah knows that it is God who gives the victory. But we also see how Jephthah is again driven by his desire. The first thing he says, the first thing he desires is to return home. It's not more money, it's not power, it's not fame. Jephthah just wants to belong. And if he can just return home, Jephthah believes his messed up life would be restored. He believes that the hole in his heart would be filled and that his broken backstory would finally find redemption. And so Jephthah seizes the opportunity in order to fulfill his desires, and he's made the head of the tribe. Now, this brings us to part three, the God-given victory. Now, we jump to verse 29, and at this point, Jephthah is about to lead the people to fight the Ammonites, and there God anoints Jephthah with the Holy Spirit to be his judge, to be his mediator, to represent God before his people. Then Jephthah makes his way into Ammonite territory, and right before he begins fighting, this happens. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, when Jephthah says, whatever comes out from the doors of my house, the Hebrew word for whatever is actually more ambiguous. It's not very clear, actually. It could actually mean and could be translated as whoever comes out from the doors of my house. Now, many commentators agree that Jephthah is actually not talking about sacrificing like a pet animal that comes bounding out of his house to greet him. He's talking about making a human sacrifice and he's probably intending to sacrifice one of his servants. But the thing is, Jephthah's vow is totally unnecessary. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him for victory. 
That's his guarantee for victory. So why does Jephthah make this additional vow? People, it's because of his desire. This vow is a reflection of how badly Jephthah wants to win the war so that he can return home and be accepted and finally belong. And this desire is so strong that vowing, for example, to sacrifice the spoils of war, gold and silver and such, is not enough. Vowing to sacrifice animals or wheat or wine or whatever is not enough. Jephthah's desire is so strong that he is willing to offer a human life for it. Now, after making this vow, Jephthah enjoys a massive victory. 20 Ammonite cities are crushed. Verse 33 tells us that Jephthah struck the Ammonites with a great blow, and the Ammonites are routed. But this is where we come to the final part of the story, which is the tragic aftermath. In verse 34, Jephthah comes home, and lo and behold, the first person out of the door, the first person to greet him, is none other than his daughter. And Jephthah loves his daughter so much. She is his only child. She is the only one who will carry his legacy. And as she dances out to greet him, totally unaware of what was happening, Jephthah tears his clothes in grief, and he cries out saying, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Now, Jephthah almost sounds like he is blaming his daughter. Like it is her fault somehow that she is going to be sacrificed. Now, why does Jephthah respond this way? Why doesn't he see his own fault in making such a rash vow? Now, people, again, it's because his daughter has gotten in the way of his desires. Right? And there's a certain irony here, because in order to gain a home, Jephthah is willing to sacrifice his own family, even his legacy. And so out of the fullness of his heart, his mouth speaks, and he heaps blame upon his daughter. Now, at this point, Jephthah could have instead looked around and, you know, just asked the people around him, is there another way? Is there a way to get around this vow? You know, he could have looked to the elders for wisdom in this matter. But Jephthah was convinced that he must sacrifice his daughter. Now, why was he so stubbornly sure of this? And again, the reason is probably that he feared that if he did not keep his end of the vow, then God would not keep his end which is to fulfill Jephthah's deep desire. And at the same time, Jephthah did not want to look like an incompetent, indecisive leader, like someone who doesn't know what he's doing. And Jephthah craved the approval of the Gileadites so much that he would rather let his daughter burn. And that's what Jephthah does. In verse 29, we are told, Jephthah did with his daughter according to his vow that he had made. Some theologians try to make it look like Jephthah did not actually offer his daughter as a sacrifice, but the biblical evidence is overwhelmingly clear. Jephthah did offer his daughter, his only child, as a burnt sacrifice. Now we come to the end of this story, and people, do you see how desire controlled and compelled Jephthah's decisions, his responses? the words of his mouth even. 
And you see that. Jephthah's life may be super dramatic, no doubt, but it's nevertheless a reflection of our own lives. Desires are powerful. They can drive our lives, but they can also derail our lives. And those desires are right now in us, and they are already at work. So how do we apply this passage? What must we do to keep our desires from derailing our lives, especially in the area of our work? And how can we instead harness these desires to drive our work as priests? Now, I have for us three applications towards priestly purity. And the first is this, train the theologian in you. Jephthah was a man of faith. He's a worshiper of Yahweh. On top of that, Jephthah was also filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we wonder, how did such a man end up making and fulfilling such a tragic vow? And the answers are found in Jephthah's theology. Now, theology uh, is about understanding who God is. It's about understanding how God does things. It's about understanding how God relates to us. And Jephthah, you know, he probably didn't think of himself as a theologian. That's not how he would have described himself. But nevertheless, in his own right, Jephthah is a theologian. Because he has his own understanding of who God is, of how God does things, and how God relates to people. Now the question is, where did Jephthah get his theology? Where did it come from? Where did he get his ideas about God from? And the sad truth is that Jephthah's theology did not come from the Bible. If Jephthah had rooted his theology in the Word of God, he would have known that God hates child sacrifice. There are at least four passages from the law of Moses where God condemns such a thing, and he forbids his people to do such a thing. Child sacrifice is an abomination to God. But let's say Jephthah knew all these things already, and he knew what God likes and doesn't like, but in the heat of the moment, he, he just made this terrible vow, right? It, it was a rash vow. Now, yet again, God's word provides for such rash vows. Leviticus chapter 5 says, If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, a rash vow, to do evil or to do good, when he realizes his guilt in any of these, and he confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as a compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So when Jephthah returned home and he sees his daughter coming out to greet him and he remembers his vow and he tears his clothes in grief, God would have wanted Jephthah to repent, to realize that his vow was a mistake. And Jephthah should have confessed his sin and, and repented, and the vow would have been forgiven, and his daughter, dear as she was to him, she would have still been alive. But Jephthah's theology isn't rooted in the Bible. His theology is a hot pot, right? It's like a roja of some Bible verses, some stories, and a whole lot of pagan superstition. And because of that, Jephthah's faith has become a fusion of idol worship and devotion to God. It's a fusion of worldliness with godliness. It's a fusion of what works with what's true. And instead of being fixated on God, 
Jephthah has become fixated on himself, on his own performance, on what he needs to do to make God fulfill his desires. Now, people, we are not so different ourselves. R.C. Sproul put it like this, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in a technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. Now, like it or not, you have your own ideas about God. You have your own ideas about who He is, about how He does things, how He relates to us, especially in our sins. All of us are theologians. But like Sproul says, the question is whether you are a good theologian or a bad one, whether your ideas about God are true or false. And I think many times it's at work that you really get to see what your theology is all about. It's where the rubber meets the road, right? Your ideas about God meet reality, and the way you respond actually flows out from your honest, your most sincerest theology. Your re responses are a reflection of what you really truly believe. And just like Jephthah, perhaps your theology is not formed through the Bible, but through a roja of Bible verses, stories, and a whole lot of superstition. For example, you may be a student and every time before your exams, you know, you go for your exams, you pray extra hard because your parents shared with you a story of how God provided when they prayed, but how their lives fell apart when they forgot to pray. So you pray for fear of not doing well. Now that's your theology. What does it say about God? Is it true? Or maybe you subscribe to a Christian version of hustle culture, right? Hustle culture is all about self-discipline, self-improvement, pushing yourself to achieve your goals. So you pack every minute of your day with activity, including, of course, Bibles reading, listening to Christian podcasts, uh, prayer, reading Christian articles, and things like that. But what's driving you is the fear that if you don't take control of your own life, your life isn't going to go anywhere. Now, again, that's your theology. What does it say about God? Is it true? Maybe some others of us believe our work should take priority over Sunday worship. And we point to the Bible, right? There's a verse that says we must rest on the Sabbath. And we think to ourselves, is going to church even restful? Right? I have to wake up so early, travel so far, bring all the kids, talk to strangers, and at the background, my work is piling up. Isn't it more restful to just sleep in on Sundays? Right? Stay home, have a leisurely breakfast, uh, get some work done at our own pace, you know, watch a show or two, take things slow. Now, isn't that more biblical than coming to church? And again, that's your theology. What does it say about God? And is it true? So much of the way we do things at work, the decisions we make, the way we respond to things, the prayers that we pray, our treatment of other people around us, all these things tell us so much about what we honestly believe about God. But the deeper question is, where are these beliefs coming from? And are they true? People, you've got to train the theologian in you. And the best way to do that is by getting into God's Word. 
getting familiar with God's Word, not just zooming in on one or two verses and picking that out, but coming to understand the grand storyline of the Bible, learning to see the gospel in all of Scripture, and making the Bible firstly about God before it is about us. People, we've got to get into the Word. Now, at the end of last year, we did a survey on the state of our Bible reading here in Agape. Uh, I think there's a little postcard that you probably found on your seats as you came in. You can take a look at it. Uh, It contains a few of the pertinent results. I just want to mention also that these results were reviewed and processed by our very own uh, Chin Yi and Melvin. Where are you, Chin Yi and Melvin? Over there, right? Praise God for you. Let's put our hands together. Appreciate them. Yeah. So they were such a help in just processing the data, providing quite a number of observations, and then presenting them to me, uh, of which I have just included just a handful of them in the postcard. Now, the survey itself was really helpful because many of you did the survey, and so the results are actually very representative of the different age groups in our church, from the youth all the way to the elderly. And I do see quite a lot of reason for celebration, right? One of the first things that that really caught me was that more than half of us, more than 50% of Agapians are reading their Bibles either most days or even every day. And that is fantastic, right? That is such an encouragement. And I think we must continue to grow in this so that in Agape, most, if not all of us, are reading the Bible regularly, right? That's the kind of church we want to be. Secondly, I just want to celebrate that 73% or almost three-quarters of our leaders are regular Bible readers, right? That is amazing. These are our pastors, our board members, our deacons, our ministry leaders, our cell leaders, and so on. Three-quarters of them are reading their Bibles almost daily, all right? That's wonderful. Can we put our hands together just to appreciate and encourage our leaders? Praise God. Now, as we celebrate these things, the challenge is to keep growing in our Bible reading. Right? So for those of us who are reading regularly, that's great. Let's keep it up. But I also encourage you to get deeper into God's Word. For those of us who are struggling to read regularly, you've got to get into the routine of doing so. Right? Set a time, set a place, uh, whether it's at home, in the toilet, a nearby coffee shop, wherever, whenever. Right? Set a time and a place and get into the rhythm. Right? Bible reading is much more than just a daily discipline but it is still a daily discipline. People, train up the theologian in you. Get deep into God's word. Get desperate for an understanding of God. And get growing in your theology. That's the first application. Here's the second. Dissect the deep desires of your heart. Now, Jephthah's story illustrates for us how we are all driven by desire. Now, whether we are pursuing instant gratification or we're pursuing delayed gratification, one way or the other, we are all driven by desire. Now, imagine that your life story is condensed just into one or two chapters, just like we saw Jephthah's life story being condensed into Judges chapter 11 and 12. What would be written in your chapters, in your one to two chapters, right? What what would be written about your backstory? What would be said about the desires that have been nurtured from your young age? What would be the opportunities that are written about you that you just jumped at, right? The opportunities in life that you just had to seize. And what 
would these opportunities and your excitement about them say about your, what your desires are? What victories or successes would be written that are so dear to you and why? And finally, what would have been the aftermath? What would you have sacrificed to lay hold of what you desire? What regrets would you have had at the end? Now, this is something that you don't need to wait until you're going to die and then you put that together, but that is something you can already be thinking about right now, especially in the context of your work. You, know, you think about as a child or in your youth, what did you want to work as, right? Why? What desires shaped your vision for your future? What opportunities in school or at work or even at home were most exciting for you? Why? And what are some work accomplishments or victories that you continue to celebrate even today, right? You continue to reminisce and recall and take great delight in them. Why are they so significant to you? And what is the price you have paid to get to where you are? What are the sacrifices you made along the way? And what drove you to make those sacrifices? People, you need to dis dissect the deep desires of your heart. Chances are the desires you have now will be the same desires driving you five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Now, John Calvin said this, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Now, in other words, true wisdom is not just beefing up your biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is part of it, and it's crucial. But true theology is not just about knowing God. It's knowing how to apply those truths about God into your life. And in order to do that, you've got to get to know yourself. Now, I just want to say that when Calvin, John Calvin, makes this statement, he's not talking about knowing your personality type. He's not talking about finding out what is your gifting or getting in touch with you know, your incidents in your past, things like that. Calvin is talking about discovering the shameful depths of your sinfulness, the vanity, the pride that is in us, the ignorance, the poverty, the weaknesses, the fears. How do you mine the dark depths of your heart? How do you come to see your sinful realities? How do you get to see the true state of your heart? I believe it's by the Holy Spirit helping you to dissect those deep, dark desires of your heart and squaring it then against the holy and perfect God. Now, one way you can get to your deep desires is by zooming in on your work life, reflecting on your journey so far, the backstory, the opportunities, the victories, the sacrifices. And if you would bring those desires to God, and reflect on his perfection, reflect on his glory, his unchanging character, you would find that your worship for him grows, but at the same time, your neediness for him, not just for his gifts, but for him, it will grow as well. And that brings me to the third application. Let the gospel make you whole. You know, when I was preparing this sermon, one of the things that caught me off guard was how affected I was by Jephthah's decision to sacrifice his daughter. Right? Or maybe it's because I've become a father and I have my own daughter now, and I just cannot imagine doing that. I cannot imagine making such a decision. I can't even bring myself to think of the process by which I would go about sacrificing my daughter. 
Right, so it's unthinkable for me. And I'm not saying that I'm a better person than Jephthah or I'm a better father than Jephthah. I'm also painfully aware that, especially in our Singaporean context in the area of work, I may never literally sacrifice my daughter, but in some sense, I could slowly sacrifice her over the next 10, 15 years, such that at the end of it, she becomes kind of dead to me, and I'm dead to her as well. And I guess because I'm a father, I feel like it must have been so so hard for Jephthah to do such a thing to his own daughter. And my heart goes out to him. Now I wonder, what if Jephthah had known the gospel? What if Jephthah knew Jesus as his savior? What if Jephthah had the opportunity to approach Jesus, knowing that Jesus has seen all his ugliness, all his sin, all the atrocities that he's committed, especially as a warrior? And what if Jephthah had gotten the chance to ask Jesus, Jesus, don't you hate me? Don't you want to drive me away just like everyone else? And then to get to hear Jesus say to him, no, I don't hate you. No, I don't want to drive you away. I actually love you. I want you to be part of my family. And what if Jephthah could see that instead of him having to go out to war to earn Jesus' love and acceptance, it is Jesus who has gone out to fight for Jephthah, to secure the victory on his behalf, and to prove his unwavering love for Jephthah. What if Jephthah had seen Jesus leaving his heavenly home as the beloved child, the only son of God, to willingly sacrifice himself for Jephthah's sake, to fulfill Jephthah's reckless vow so that Jephthah can be set free and that he would never need to sacrifice his own daughter. What if Jephthah had known the gospel? People, if a mighty warrior, if an accomplished judge like Jephthah has such a need for the gospel, then how much more you and I? People, on this side of heaven, none of us will be completely made whole. We will com continue to lack. We will continue to ache. We will continue to desire and yearn. But the gospel makes us increasingly whole. The cross turns our focus from ourselves, from our performance, from our emptiness, and onto Jesus. Jesus is the lover of our souls, and we drink from his love. The gospel redirects our desires to Jesus. We realize that he is the only one who satisfies. And so, yes, we must grow in our theology, in our understanding of God through his word. And yes, we must grow in knowing ourselves, in dissecting the deep, dark desires of our hearts. But ultimately, nothing less than Jesus himself, God incarnate, will satisfy us. Nothing less than his death will save us from the reckless desires of our hearts. And in the area of work, nothing less than his unconditional love proven at the cross will drive us to fulfill our priestly calling. It is the gospel that makes us whole. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now recognizing that we are creatures driven by desire. As much as we would like to think, Lord, we are not driven by knowledge 
We're not driven by even our principles, Lord. But how you created us was that we would be driven by desire. But Lord, as we reflect on Jephthah's life, we see that, and we see him, Lord, sacrificing his own daughter as a burnt offering. And I think, Lord, that horrifies us. Lord, we see how sin has so deeply distorted our desires. It terrifies us that, Lord, as our desire for other things grows and grows and grows, and as it supplants our desire for Jesus, Lord, who can tell, O oh Lord, what our corrupt over-desires might drive us to do? Who knows, O oh Lord, how spectacularly our desires may derail us from our callings in Christ Jesus. Lord, we bring ourselves to you, Lord. Maybe some of us have already done unthinkable things, Lord. And now we are carrying all kinds of shame and guilt and horror even at ourselves. Holy Spirit, we ask that you show us Jesus they would show us the cross. They show, show us the full radiance of His love and His beauty. Lord, that as we see Him taking our place, Lord, as He, as he sees all that is corrupt, all that is broken, all that is ugly about our desires and our hearts, and as He chooses, in spite of knowing all these things, to still love us, to choose to die for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that You show us Jesus, Lord. Make Him our desire. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to love Him. Teach us, Spirit, to pursue Him. Teach us to live for Him. Father, your word says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, let the grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ drive us to a purity of heart where we desire above all else to see you, our Father, and to see Jesus, your Son. Lord, we also pray that in the area of work, would you expose to us our theology that we have crafted by all kinds of things, Lord. Expose it, Lord. We pray also reveal the deep, dark desires of our hearts, even through our work environments, Lord. And Lord, through this thing, that this work that we often see as such a secular, unspiritual thing, Lord, would you use this area of our life, Lord, to reawaken such a neediness for the gospel to make us whole? And then, Lord, would you help us to arise as your priests, to radiate your goodness, your beauty, your perfection. Lord, as you set our hearts in order, Lord. So Father, I want to pray all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg